1: The banking and finance sectors had pretty good 2017s in terms of finding more wealth. The quarterly reports of big banks and other members of the finance sector were one of the reasons why the markets have skyrocketed in the last 12 months. But we've also seen the banking sector continue to trip itself up with various misdeeds. In the last year, it felt like Wells Fargo and UBS were leading that parade. So what should we expect from banking and finance this year, especially with the implementation of the tax bill? Peter Conti Brown is an assistant professor. David Zaring is an associate professor, both in the Department of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School, and they join me here in studio. Peter, David, great seeing you. Thank you for coming in. Great Great. to be here. Thank you both. Uh, So what was your reaction when you look back at 2017 with banking and finance? David, start with you.
0: Uh, Well, I think it was a great year for banks generally, um, and it's a year where Basically, I think they uh, did very well in anticipation of deregulation that hasn't really happened yet. So they got something out of the tax bill, uh, but um, of course that uh, is only now beginning to go into effect. And there's, uh, I think, a sense that maybe there'll be legislation on the Hill that'll pass this year um, and a lighter touch by regulators over banks that may be beginning to happen as we speak um, but in some ways it was a year that was good but it was a good year because they were hopeful about the future rather than I think anything that immediately uh, affected them as far as the way they were overseen by the government.
2: Peter we've seen during the Obama administration we saw a lot of uh, you know the banking industry and banking lobbies interests expressed through the House Republicans and the various versions of their kind of repeal Dodd-frank or, or amend Dodd-frank. What we saw in 2017 was a lot more uh, specificity about what these things would look like. And that happened both at the legislative front. The House passed what some have called the Choice Act 2.0, the second version of their massive Dodd-Frank overhaul. uh, That's still pending in the Senate. But what we've seen in the Senate, too, is a pretty dramatic uh, proposal with some bipartisan buy-in to redo the way that we uh, regulate uh, uh, big banks but not the biggest banks. That's a a pretty dramatic walk back of, uh, of the main... Uh, the main move in, in dodd-frank and banks uh, seem to be cheering uh, that move that's on the legislative front and from regulation we see a lot of sympathy coming from the Trump Treasury they've issued reports uh, analyzing basically every aspect of the of the financial system but especially the way that the Trump administration will differ from the Obama administration the way they regulate systemic risk which is something that banks, Uh, have squawked about in the in the decade since the uh, the financial crisis and now it seems that they've got some sympathetic ears in Washington.
1: What do you think is the future of Dodd-Frank?
2: I think that uh, that some of the main pieces remember that Dodd-Frank is 16 different statutes uh, stapled together and some of the main pieces that we see the very different approach we take to uh, regulating and trading derivatives um, the existence of some sort of bureaucracy that concentrates consumer financial protection, um, uh, the regulation of systemic risk, uh, an alternative to bankruptcy in case of, of failure of large institutions. I think all of those big blocks are here to stay. Um, how we do it, though, I think will be, will be radically
1: changed. David?
0: Yeah, I think that uh, it's the law of the land, and banks, I'm not sure, would even want every aspect of Dodd-Frank to go away, especially, as Peter says, with the derivatives trading that's being pushed onto exchanges and away from the sort of bespoke deals that uh, used to characterize that market. Um, As far as the statute itself goes, I think the, the the bleeding edge may be what happens with the Volcker Rule. So that was a rule that pushed uh, propriety trading desks off, uh, away from uh, banks. Um, and banks largely complied, I think, with the Volcker Rule, but they found compliance to be uh, demanding. Um, and uh, so there seems to be people on both sides of the aisle who are talking about uh, – alleviating the vocal rules regulatory burdens especially for sort of smaller banks um, but as Peter says they may not be in the end that small to be able to take advantage of what's been mooted as um, uh, as a rollback of that particular provision which sort of turned banks away from trading on their own account so they were uh, uh, they had to be middlemen in the financial markets rather than sort of gamblers with their own stake and that that was the idea behind it
2: Peter? These kinds of um, of institutional barriers have been experimented with in uh, in various ways for for decades, even even centuries. And the Volcker rule is the most recent example of this. Just saying, right? We want to have clear, clean, simple separation. Yep. Um, and it just hasn't been that way. Even Volcker himself wasn't pleased with the uh, with the complexity of the uh, of the implementation. And these definitional exercises, in part, it's just really difficult to define. Well, what constitutes trading on your own account versus acting on behalf of a client, right? That can be difficult, but in part because the industry uh, has a lot of incentive to make that complicated, right? To look for loopholes and mm-hmm. to try to, uh, uh, to to make space in the shadow of that law. And so I, I uh, agree with David. I think that there is uh, a sense inside the regulators at the, at the Fed especially, um, but also at the, at the Treasury and in Congress to say, all right, well, has this experiment failed? Should we just block back the entire thing, try something else? So we'll see in uh, in 2018, I think there's going to gonna be a lot of uh, of movement on both the regulatory and legislative front there.
1: Peter Connie Brown and David Zering joining me in studio from the Wharton School. Your comments welcome at 844 wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. David, you mentioned briefly about regulation and and the potential pullbacks that we may or may not see later this year. Uh Part of this also goes to the feeling of a lot of consumers about the state of the banking industry, and it's something we've talked about a lot on this show. And I think, as you said, while a lot of people would uh, in the banking industry don't want to see an entire pullback, I think a lot of consumers are concerned about any kind of excessive level of pullback because of what we saw, obviously, in the years past, and to a degree what we still see today when things pop up like Wells Fargo a few months ago.
0: Yeah, it definitely looks like the current regulatory, uh, you know, the people in place are less interested in that kind of consumer protection mission than they might have been in uh, the prior administration. So uh, it's something that I think... Is a little scary for consumers because all of a sudden they're going to feel a little bit more like they're on their own. You know, one of the great things about uh, America's banking system is that you've generally, and I'm not saying that this is no longer the case, you've been able to really trust that when you put your money into a, a bank, that it's going to be safe, it's going to be protected by deposit insurance, yep. and you know, hopefully you've had a sense that your banker is sort of working on your behalf. And I think a lot of that sort of confidence has been undone by the Wells Fargo scandal and scandals like it uh, about, you know, the way banks and and other financial intermediaries, student loans, auto loan providers, have treated consumers. And I think we're going to see a lot less appetite uh, by the... um, by the the banking regulators and especially the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which which in theory is the sort of lead agency, the federal agency on on on, on taking a stand against these sorts of sharp practices. I think we're going to see less action out of them. Um, there's currently a fight over who's going to be the next CFPB head, but, um, yeah. you know, what I've seen, the names mooted, uh, are people who who really, I think, want to take the that agency in a deregulatory direction, and and for consumers, it's going to be a little bit more buyer-beware than it used to be.
1: Peter?
2: The CFPB is such a fascinating example. Uh, you know, it, it, it comes out um, of the financial crisis moment. It doesn't have uniform support from folks inside the Obama administration, Barack Obama puts an end to that. Uh, Larry Summers gets on board and eventually Dodd-Frank, its actual name is the Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, right? So yeah. half of the of the tagline <laughs> is about consumer protection. Um, and, and what the CFPB is showing is that in any discussion about financial reform, we've got to remember it's a three-legged stool, right? There's legislation, there's regulation, there's supervision. What we mean by supervision are the discretionary decisions mm-hmm. that the uh that the bureaucracy will make with respect to individual institutions. And that they don't need anything really. They just they can they follow their own uh uh their own worldview. Personnel Mm -hmm. is policy. CFPB, as David said, I think is the ripest for that kind of dramatic change. We're already seeing it with Mick Mulvaney, who's the who's uh Trump's budget director, who's also uh uh acting as interim director. So far, courts have upheld his position there. And he's literally rewritten the CFPB's mission on its website to say, "Well, this isn't so much about consumer financial protection. It's about uh, making markets competitive, right? And uh, and encouraging people to to do their (laughs) thing, which is very consistent with what House Republicans have been asking for. Uh, Indeed, they they want to rename it the CFPB, what is it? The um, Consumer Financial Opportunity. Commission or something like that. Um, and to really just pivot away from this Elizabeth Warren idea of, of banning or restricting sharp practices that consumers are not going to be aware of uh, when they're dealing with their banks.
1: How do you think the, the, that the banking sector and finance are feeling going into 2018 because of the tax bill, David?
0: I think they're feeling pretty good. I guess uh, some of our large banks had to book uh, paper losses yeah. because they had, um, you know, uh, they had uh, 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 tax advantages that they had to sort of mark down. And so um, that uh, led to some short term Bad news, I guess, and uh, some of the recent earning announcements. But um, you know, the fact is, uh, the the tax bill looks like it's going to ben- benefit them greatly, and um, uh, probably that's one of the reasons why bank stocks have done so well. and you know, I think they're going to be very enthusiastic about seeing the way it's implemented. And um, uh, you know, not just for them. I think uh, they they think that their clients may be bringing money back home. So to the extent that they're uh, engaged in investment banking, they're trying to find deals for right. uh, corporations, it could be the case that those corporations will have money to spend and they may spend it on acquisitions. That means fees for bankers. Um, so I think, Uh, I think they're going to be pretty excited about the prospects in 2018, as far as that goes. And I think some of that uh, will be tax-driven.
1: Which goes to, Peter, and something that we were talking about before we went on the air, the fact that Apple is obviously uh, already made the announcement that they are going to be bringing back a lot of money, and obviously that, at some level, is going to be a benefit for the banking sector. Yeah, sure, in some some way. I mean, one one dark
2: cloud on their horizon is that the um, consistently good returns that we've seen and the low volatility is always bad for uh, parts of banks' businesses that rely on clients to hire them for creating new instruments or using other instruments for hedging their risks. When clients don't see risks, they just see low volatility, Uh, they need less banks to structure their investment portfolio. And so you've seen those divisions hammered by this period of relatively low volatility in the stock market. So uh, uh, increased volatility for that part of the business will be good. Uh, Increased volatility sometimes means uh, a major stock sell-off, which can lead to recession or be associated with recession, which case is not good for... Uh, for sure. bank stocks. So, that, that, that navigating that complexity, a desire, in some sense, to have clients do more to, uh, uh, to hedge their bets and to, to structure their portfolios differently, uh, offset by a desire to keep on riding this bull market as far as it will go, I think is part of the, the bank's investment strategy. But what we see here in the Trump administration. Right, is that, and we've talked about this before on the show. Is that what looked one year ago like a, a, a economic policy incoherence, the Gary Cohn, Stephen Mnuchin side versus the Steve Bannon, Steve Miller side? Yeah. Right. That that's largely been lost entirely on the Bannon Miller side. Uh, they have still a strong voice in immigration. That's no small thing. Uh, banks care about that too. But in terms of financial reform. That is squarely in the camp of the Goldman Sachs Trump uh, wing of the Trump administration, and that sounds pretty good if you're a banker and you want to uh, you want to push your preferred personnel in these agencies, or, or you want your legislative package to be uh, more sympathetic to your business. Then the Trump administration is delivering those goods. Is it a yeah. good
1: thing? Is it a good thing for the economy overall? With that that side of the
0: White House winning this battle to a degree. That's the $64 trillion question. Right, right? exactly. (laughs) Exactly. David? It it depends on, you know, how you feel about trickle-down economics. I mean, I agree with Peter. You could have imagined a Trump administration coming in and saying, um, you know what, we we don't trust Wall Street. Uh, And he sounded a lot of this uh, sort of rhetoric in the campaign um, and on the campaign trail. Um, And so then you might have expected to see a sort of regulatory strategy, which might have been particularly sensitive to the needs and interests of community banks, uh, who often... Uh, feel that they uh, get the short end of the regulatory stick and that um, uh, the big banks on Wall Street really benefit from the way that uh, banking regulations conducted. And I think the way that the Trump administration has enforced its rules and gone about the regulations it's gone about has indicated no particular interest in the needs or interests of community bankers. Um, It hasn't been opposed to them, but um, it's certainly everything that they've done has uh, been great for the really largest banks. Um... And uh, not um, uh, particularly great yet for community banks. Though then again, you know, we talked about the Volcker Rule and whether it might go away. If it goes away, um, uh, it's most likely to go away for those smaller banks, and that'll be that'll be something they can celebrate. Um, but um, I agree with Peter that um, in general, mm-hmm. um, uh, the way the big versus small banks. Uh, Divide um, uh, could have gone is not the way that it did go, and and that Wall Street is, I think, found a lot to like about um, Trump-era bank regulation.
1: What about the 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 path uh, of the Federal Reserve and all of this with Jerome Powell? What how how does that piece to this play play in here?
0: You know,
2: Powell and uh, uh, there there are a lot of a lot of uncertainties about where the Fed will be heading here. Uh, In part because we now have for the first time. Financial regulation and supervision uh, located in two power centers inside the Fed, uh, clearly, plainly by statute, and that's going to be Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, yep. and Randy Quarles, who's the vice chair for supervision, which is a position that was created in 2010 but went unfilled uh, until until now. Uh, Dan Tarullo had been uh, kind of running that show, but we'd had you know a Fed governor running the bank supervision show. For the for the Fed's history, this is new. This is different, and so they're they're quite close personally. They know each other well. They have a long history together. Um, but we're going to see a question. Well, where's the Fed going from a regulatory and supervisory perspective? Well, who do you ask? Do you look to see what Randy Quarles is doing? Do you look to see what Jay Powell is doing? Is there going to be any daylight between them? Uh, I think that's going to be some of the uh, uh, you know the palace intrigue at the Fed to watch uh, is as. Randy Quarles asserts himself as vice chair for supervision. Where's that going? Now, Jay Powell is a Republican. Uh, he is uh, uh, he's absolutely an establishment Republican yeah. to attach a label to him. Uh, he's a consensus builder. Uh, and, uh, and so I think we've heard from him. Uh, enthusiasm for the Bernanke and Yellen and Dan Tarullo approaches to financial reform for Dodd-Frank, uh, with the admission that there have been things that we need to correct. But he is not someone who's going to radically change that regulatory approach. Um, is Randy Quarles? Uh, uh, there's less certainty there. Uh, and that's why I think watching the, the way that the new Fed operates
0: uh, uh, from a governance
2: perspective is going to, is going to be so important.
0: David? Yeah, from a from a macro sense, it also looks like Powell is a don't rock the boat um, reappointment. He's definitely a Republican, and uh, and Janet Yellen wasn't. But of all the Republicans that could have been chosen for the Fed chairship, uh, it looks like Powell's the one who's most likely to keep things the way that they have been going uh, under Yellen. Um, and uh, there's been no indication that the Fed's really changing its policy on, on macro prudential uh, monetary policy, um, uh, or I should say macro monetary policy. On the prudential side, um, I agree, it's too soon to know. Um, he uh, also there doesn't sound like a rock the boat kind of guy. He hasn't issued angry dissents about the way that the Fed's been conducting stress tests, which they did on his watch, or uh, complaining about um, any of that stuff, really, um, except for, you know, a few cautious notes. The Fed often speaks, uh, whenever you get any of them speaking, they often speak in cautious notes, but uh, a few cautious notes about uh, a desire not to go too far with regulatory oversight. But it looks to me like um, uh, he's not— inclined to radically revisit the things that banks have had to go through, which are you know a new regime of stress testing, uh, compliance largely with the international capital rules which are stricter than they have been mm-hmm. um, and uh, I don't think that stuff's going to go away. Um, for banks, um, at least uh, it doesn't sound like he's going to be the one leading the charge with with Randy Quarles, we know less. And, and uh, so um, I agree with Peter. It'll be interesting to see if those guys, if Quarles tries to take uh, regulation and supervision in a different direction, or if he, um, uh, you know, sort of picks up with the way it was done uh, in the Obama administration.
1: Going going back to something we were talking about a second ago, and we're talking with Peter Connie Brown and David Zering here of the Wharton School. Uh the feeling of the consumer, I want to get back to that for a second, because uh, obviously we have gone through a stretch where the consumer in general has not felt great about the banking sector. Are, are we are we in a point right now, I've mentioned this to you before, Peter, are we now at a point where there's a certain level of skepticism that will always be there about this industry, about this sector at this point? You know, th-
2: public's view of their financial institutions has, has rarely been an easy one. It's rarely been a, a, a sympathetic one. We have had periods in history where uh, titans of the industry are are held up uh, for their virtues, but that's been all very, very long time. Uh, early 20th century is where, where we've got to go, and that didn't even last very long even then. So I, you know, it is, as Uh, a few certainties that we have in this business I think one is that the public is always going to look at the extremely wealthy and the extremely large financial institutions with some degree of skepticism uh, in part because they don't even interact with them except by way of headlines and uh, uh, and when bonuses are paid or or, or something like that I think a place where the the public is going to be interacting more is is a very active uh, part of uh, the deregulatory move which has some bipartisan buy in but people like uh, Senators Warren and Brown uh, are, are not as enthusiastic and that is yeah. changing the way,
1: especially Elizabeth Warren especially
2: Elizabeth Warren, right uh, although she's been talking a lot about uh, wanting to do regulatory relief for community banks. but the big question is is this we have about 10 banks uh, that have 350 billion dollars in assets or, or larger. Ten to twelve—that varies, of course, with markets. We have about twenty that have 150 billion in assets or larger. We have about forty that have 50 billion in assets or larger. Why do those numbers matter? Well, Dodd Frank says you got 50 billion dollars or more, then you're you're systemically important, right? And so we're going to subject you uh, uh, to higher regulatory and supervisory standards. We're going to go through your balance sheet, and it's just—and that's very expensive. But the idea is, we're just going to make sure that we spot any problems before, uh, they happen. So we're not surprised by another Lehman Brothers or AIG or what have you. Um, and the discussion right now is $50 billion is too low. So let's walk that back to at least 150, maybe 350. Let's take it back so that we're really only focusing maybe on the top 10 financial institutions. And even there's some conversations, let's just drop that entire model of looking at institutions one by one and focus instead on activities. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, that's going to be an interesting uh, question, an interesting experiment, right? So uh, uh, a lot of people are banking uh, in that space less than $350 billion, right? Will they see those savings passed on to them? Will we, they see higher uh, interest rates on their savings accounts that are even higher than the, the, as the Fed raises interest rates? Um, will they care? Is this going to just expose the entire system to greater risk and greater instability? Yeah. That's the place where I think the uh, the arguments are going to be fiercest, where I think the likelihood of legislative change is highest,
0: uh, and where the uncertainty about the consequences is also going to be pretty great. David? I think that um, consumers may think it's still a pretty decent time to get a home <laughs> mortgage, um, and that's something that um, you know consumers can like. Uh, the The thing that I think consumers may regret or may feel a need to watch out for is that it could be that the regulators are signaling that, um, you know, when it comes to the sort of cross-selling that Wells Fargo did, I don't think any bank's going to want to try to duplicate uh, the sort of pressures that that bank put on salespeople to, sure. um, you know, get consumers into various different financial products. But um, that, uh, that the you know sort of gloves may be able to come off as for, as where it goes for banks sort of doing sort of aggressive salesmanship um, on the consumer level um, and uh, and so we'll have to see how that goes. Uh, on the one hand, it's a decent time to put money into a bank, and it's a decent time to get money out of a bank uh, as far as loans and uh, I think business loans and and that sort of thing. Um, uh, uh, so. So that's something that makes the consumer experience happy, um, but uh, it could be that um, the uh, look and feel of um, you know being asked to open up a credit card account or a, a, you know take out another loan or to do a HELOC or to, to constantly be pestered about uh, new sort of financial activities you can engage in. It could be that that's going to go up and up, and so consumers are going to have to you know take some care when they think about their. Uh, you know, their banker is, you know, this guy is not a trusted advisor necessarily, but yeah. um, somebody who's trying to, uh, you know, sell me as, as much as he can.
1: But it, it is still interesting that, that we, we do see instances of things pop up like Wells Fargo and Equifax, you know, and, and, and I think for for uh, and I'm in this mindset, too, it, it still really shocks me. And I don't know if it necessarily shocks the both of you, following the industry as much as you do. But when you see something like Equifax happen, I know it—you know—it's a little bit of a different angle. But Wells Fargo and, and some of the other things that happen, it just does make you sit back and wonder what is going on within this industry. And it does also take us back to the time, uh, you know, of the recession. And again looking at why there weren't more people really brought to task over what happened during the financial crisis.
0: One thing that uh, I'll I'll just say briefly, you know, I've been shocked with Equifax is that banks spend a lot of time worrying about cyber attacks. And uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, here's an important part of our financial infrastructure that seems like it spent no time worrying about it. And that's the part that got found out. And, uh, you know, that kind of thing is just terrifying, uh, from a you know systemic perspective, if um, you know you can spend all your time on cybersecurity and cyber surveillance and uh, be confident that big banks are doing the right thing, and then all of a sudden, yeah. you know, consumers face a terrible price because of somebody who nobody was taking any uh, nobody was taking any care and nobody was looking to see ensure that they were taking care. I don't want to be too Panglossian
2: here, but there is a, a, a silver lining to the cynicism that bank misbehavior can breed. And that is that uh, with, you know, a young generation, an entrepreneurial generation, uh, uh, just saying, well, banks are terrible at this, we can do it better. Uh, I was just reading about something yesterday where there's some sort of uh, innovation on a lending club uh, intermediary where they're trying to say, you know what, through a combination of advertising uh, and then uh, and targeting small banks, we're going to be able to offer an online only, no ATM savings account that's going to be at 3% interest, right? Yeah. I just saw this yesterday. Yeah. I'm a little bit skeptical about how that business model sustains itself, but the uh, you know they're going live. The fintech tech space, if we define fintech as financial innovation providing banking-like services outside of traditional financial institutions, right. is an extraordinarily exciting one. It has been for many years. Uh, and so if people are skeptical that banks are going to be able to uh, deliver these goods and services, these products and services in a way that respects them as consumers, and it's not that they're just going to grab their pitchforks and light the country on fire. <laughs> right. uh, it's that they're going to go and shift elsewhere and look for other opportunities. And that might explain part of the enthusiasm for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency. It might yeah. explain a lot of the enthusiasm for things like uh, SoFi and, uh, and other kinds of uh, uh, lending organizations. And if I were a banker at one of these very large institutions, especially Wells Fargo or, or one of the others that's got a, a black eye or two or three yeah. and facing consumers... I would be thinking about, well, what can I do to just completely innovate in a way that is exciting and fresh and tells consumers that thing you hated doing about banking? We've solved that problem for you, and here it is. And Banks are doing that. So I think that that cynicism uh, feeds an entrepreneurial cycle. Uh, that we're seeing and I think I expect
1: we'll see more of. Great seeing you both. Thank you for coming in. Thank you all the best. A pleasure. David Zaring, Peter Conti Brown here with the Wharton School.
0: For more insight from knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.